It's like saying, you know, the dog definitely doesn't die at the end, or does he? <laughs> you know? What are you doing? Bruce Willis was uh, maybe Maybe dead. dead. Yeah. God. It's going to be the weirdest intro to this show ever. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 169 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. It's a new year. We have put the garbage fire that is 2016 behind us. We're on to a whole new garbage fire. Um, but for this show, it's a time of renewal. It's a time to uh, get... Uh, behind some of these amazing films that I'm catching up with at the end of the year. Um, some really, really promising things that are going to drop in the weeks ahead. Get back in touch with, with why I do all of this. It's uh, It's been a strange month or two um, for my output, but I'm hoping to, to turn that corner as we turn the page into 2017. And here to help me do that is one of my favorite podcasters um, who I am really, really excited to have on this show because the film we were going to talk about today is one that has its director's fingerprints all over it and it is a director of high renown so we need to get a person on here who is used to speaking about the film and the director as a uh, symbiotic relationship and who does so with great passion so we are across a wire to central illinois tonight um, where we get one of the hosts of the director's club podcast a show you can find appropriately enough at directorsclubpodcast.com jim laskowski is here how are you jim laskowski Oh my gosh, I'm doing great, and it's an honor to be back because I love movies, I love podcasts, and I love Canada. So, have you been? Like, are, you, you know, okay, like, I should, I, I, I guess I should say that I love all the podcasters that I've talked to from, from Canada. Canada. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we will take it, but you know, I, I, I do feel like you got to make a trip. Well, like, I, I, of course, I always do advocate for one of our film festivals to come on up and join the Reindeer Games. But at the very least, you know, next time you've got a long weekend, just get in the car and come on over. It's not that far of a drive. Yeah, as long as Ben Affleck isn't there for Reindeer Games, then uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come on up. <laughs> I think you're okay. On episode 169, we'll be discussing silence. We'll take a moment to turn the record over and play the other side, but first we need to learn more about Jim. This is Know Your Enemy. Mr. Lauskowski first appeared on episode 140, where we talked about Inside Out. We learned in that episode that the first double feature he saw in a theater was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, followed by the Sesame Street joint Follow That Bird. The last film he'd seen at the time was Manglehorn. The worst film he could name was The Doom Generation. The unseen classic or essential was Dr. Javago. Have you made any progress there? 
Oh my gosh! No, not yet. Oh, I, good. I keep grief. waiting. I mean, I it keep is waiting long, for a rep right? screening. Yeah. Was, okay. That that is good because that that is the best way it will play. So yes, hold hold out and you know just kind of keep your eyes peeled. The film he wished he'd made was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So it's time for round two, Mr. Jim Laskowski. What is the film you dig that seemingly nobody else does? You know, I think the easy go-to answer here here would probably be the last two Richard Kelly films, either of them. But I do know a small <laughs> cult of critics, um, Craftyard, that yeah. defend Southland Tales. And uh, I know a couple of local Chicago critics that actually um, <laughs> liked the box so much they put it in their top 20 of that year, which is wild, even though I, I wouldn't go that far. Um, so I'm going to go down a different route because I do love a good romantic comedy, even if they're sentimental, cheesy, and predictable. And one of my favorite writers of all time is the great James L. Brooks. And for some reason, aside from, I don't know, again, a couple of friends here and there, not really that many at all. In fact, one actively despises it. His last movie was this little scene... A picture with Paul Rudd and Reese Witherspoon called How Do You Know? And it was savaged, honestly. I mean, I can make the argument that it, 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 uh, most romantic comedies shouldn't run two hours plus, so hmm. maybe a little indulgent. But I thought it was charming, great dialogue, uh, a little acerbic, and, you know, Paul Rudd can do no wrong. If you put him in as the romantic lead... I mean, come on, that's that's a huge selling point right there. And Reese Withers- Witherspoon is charming. I don't know. I mean, I, I embrace this movie, How Do You Know, more than most people have. And some, you know, it's one of those movies, too, that if you, well, if there were blockbusters still around, you would go there and probably find it in the $2 used bin and nobody would ever buy it. I, I do not remember this at all. All and you it know, got buried. You mentioned that romantic comedies get crapped upon, and and to my to my, I I would actually say to that unfairly a lot of the time yes. because there are some really really well crafted romantic comedies that really stand the test of time. Um, but the one thing that's a really really strange is that it seems to be really hard for the creators of romantic comedies to have a career with any kind of real longevity. So James L. Brooke is, is a legend, right? Like, sure. This is a man who he can just roll in Simpsons money for the rest of his life um, at, at this stage. But this is a guy, of course, who brought us some really, really seminal movies, um, you know, terms of endearment as good as it gets. Um, you know, there, there, there's so many more, of course, but those are just the first two that come up off the top of my head. And, he hasn't made one in a little like he hasn't made a really good one in a while. No, then, the only other thing he's done is uh I believe he either executive produced or produced last year's uh The Edge of 17 which yes. I loved. Yeah. Broad, so. Like Broadcast News is one of the best movies out of the, out of the entire decade of the 1980s. Like yes. another another person who comes to mind like this is um is Rob Reiner. When's the last time we were talking about a Rob Reiner movie? True. That's true. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a strange, strange thing is that more than the romantic comedy as an entity, the creators seem to have a hard time really kind of keeping the, the the work coming. So, uh, you know, listen, I, you, you're almost inspired me to, to like go looking for this movie. Um, if, if it's got the Laskowski seal of approval and well, I it's like not it. perfect. Okay. That's fine. I'm, I'm good with flaws, especially in comedy. I'm okay with flaws. So maybe I'll give this one a go. Um, what's the other side of this though? What is the movie that everybody else likes that you really can't get on board with? 
Okay, well, comedy and humor are so subjective that I'd hate to just say the hangover and leave it at that. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a controversial choice. Okay. That'll probably get people screaming at their iPods and it's a movie that came out last year. Okay. And it's not a movie I actively dislike, but if I were to think of one title that I just I'm shocked and surprised that I did not connect with, it's La La Land. And I walked in, like, I seriously saw this trailer and I said, well, that's going to be my number one. I just have this feeling. And maybe I placed all these really high expectations walking into the movie um, based on critics and audiences going gaga for it. And I, I thought it was just okay. I thought, you know, it was a pale imitation of musicals and the songs weren't particularly memorable outside of City of Stars. Um, and I just didn't like Ryan Gosling's character all that much. <laughs> I mean, he's calling his girlfriend a baby while she's upset and complaining about being in a band with John Legend. I mean, he just he kind of had this elitist superior attitude about jazz that really irked me. Um, so I don't know. I There's a lot to love about it. And I think the last 15 minutes are pretty incredible. Yeah. But it's certainly a movie that I feel like I'm on the outside looking in. Um, based on critical and um, audience response to it, you know, I do get that. Now, don't get me wrong; like that was that made my my top five for last yeah. year. But like, just at, just at the five, <laughs> you were yelling at that point. I'm sure. No, no, but, no. But all the same, you know, I, I gave it a five for just the feeling I was left with during the Toronto Film Festival. That was the 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 week where it won the Audience Choice Award, which. If it's a commercial film, it's usually a pretty good stamp of approval on a good commercial film. Um, in the past, it's gone to movies like Silver Linings Playbook and um, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, you know, it, it's it's usually a sign that you're in for good things. Mm-hmm. And more than that, it also picked up showings. It was originally supposed to have two screenings, and then it picked up a third, and then it picked up a fourth because of demand and response. Yeah. So when that started happening, I was like, holy crap, this must be amazing. Um, it, to me, it's really, really good. It's really cool. Like, it's it's well-executed filmmaking. But at the same time, it's a feeling. And I, I that feeling is very cold for long stretches. So yeah. I, I would not, if somebody came up to me and they said, well, like you just did, you know, I didn't really care for La La Land. I get that. You know, I, I, to- I would not argue anybody into the ground over that because at this stage so much of it it's not just the film but it's all the all the buzz around the film i'm i'm the watch it again guy so what all i would say is maybe in a few years come back to it at some point you know if if, if it's on netflix give it a go when the hype has died down and you know now that you've seen the story maybe you'll look at it from a technical level or something i don't know um but no I, i i can totally see the everybody else digs that but i don't um what was the last film to make you cry well it's a movie i saw i think a week ago and it's a monster calls which i i walked into this again um with you know not the highest of expectations because um you know i just didn't it it certainly wasn't getting the kind of buzz that we've been hearing about for other films but i certainly was interested in just the concept of uh, a small boy uh, trying to come to terms with potentially losing a parent, and I've been through that. So um, I kind of was, I kind of was somewhat prepared for. Okay, well, you know, if if the worst happens, 
be prepared and <laughs> bring some Kleenex and yeah. you know it it's not a spoiler to give away that uh you know it's it's it doesn't doesn't necessarily have a happy ending but it also really uh embraces this idea of moving forward even if these horrible things happen in your life learning to accept them as part of living and to do that like you know uh, during your adolescent years is pretty pretty incredible in a way it's like it sort of does you know bringing back to our last conversation um it it it, it conjured up the same emotions with the ending of inside out where a young child sort of has to grow up emotionally a lot faster than maybe they had planned on, but they're gaining some wisdom out of that experience. I, but, you know, I, I, I kind of think it's, you know, to take my own advice, I kind of think I need to watch that again. Um, sure. I, I got an award season screener of that. So I tried watching it just in my living room and I, I, I just, I couldn't latch. I don't know what it was. I don't know if maybe it was uh, that I'd already just been through enough in the weeks ahead, <laughs> in the weeks before, or that I, I had trouble getting past the similarity between the monster and Groot, or that in the back <laughs> of my head I was kind of thinking of the Iron Giant a lot, but yeah. I, 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 it didn't it didn't hit me. Now, films around the same time like Hacksaw Ridge and um, Jackie really kind of got there for me. So maybe I was sure. by that point I was just spent, but. The st- you know what? And I do know that it's actually based on a book. So yeah, I want to. I'm going to read the book too. Yeah, I was going to say maybe that's what I got to do. Maybe I got to read the book and maybe I'll engage a little bit more. Or as I say, I'll I'll go check it out in the theater. But I I, I wish I got there. I'm an easy like I'm a really easy mark in general. And these days yeah. it doesn't take much. It's a, it's a little bit yeah too like where the wild things are yeah. as well. Which that one hit me a little harder. So maybe it's, yeah. maybe it's just all in the delivery. In the sure. movie of your life, who plays you? This is a strange choice. I'm going with David Cross. <laughs> I, I, you know, okay. Um, he's, he's a weird dude. Um, he is, but I, he's, he's got a sense of humor that I really enjoy. And I do, I do see that in you. So, apropos uh, yeah. choice. He's not, you know, he's not necessarily like the most, um, you know, charming, charismatic, Brad Pitt kind of a leading man. But... He's funnier than me, and i I think he can I think he can pull off the awkward, nerdy charm very well and capture my essence, maybe in an interesting way that a traditional actor probably couldn't. And let's face it, I'm I'm no Justin Timberlake, and he I mean he would be the ideal version of who I would want to play me. See, I, I think for full comparison, we'd have to see what you look like painted blue. That yeah, for sure, and um, I I I do I I do shower with with some jean shorts on. Oh, you're and, are you were never nude? No, <laughs> no, I wouldn't go that far. I, but see, uh, with me, it's just do people understand that quote? Because otherwise, I have no time for them. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> exactly. Um, last but not least, what are you watching next, buddy? I am going to be watching a film from 2006 called Requiem. Um, I was really taken with the lead actress in Tony Erdmann, this uh, mm. sort of German dark dramedy of sorts about just, uh, you know, kind of a fractured relationship that this woman has with her father. Um, and it's an epic movie. It's like two and a half hours, but I was never bored. And I thought the lead actress was every bit as interesting as as her quirky dad. And I had never seen her before in anything, but I discovered that she was in this um, psychological horror film that I believe is also from Germany and was uh, quite acclaimed. I mean, it wasn't like huge over the, you know, over the moon again, but 
it's really just about a young girl with epilepsy who suffers like kind of a breakdown and everyone in her community is convinced that it's a result of demonic forces. Uh, and I believe it's also a true story. So I'm going with Requiem, man. I'm okay. fascinated by this. I'm looking idea. at like, I'm looking at still images from this movie while we're talking here. And this looks really, really fascinating. So I think I'm going to, I might yeah. have to track this one down myself if I can, if I can find it. Um, but that, okay. Requiem. And I, and well, on the, on top of that, I also do need to see Tony Erdman, um, yes, you do. which drops here very, very soon. So, Hey, that might be a future episode of the show. Um, speaking of, you know, goodness waiting in the early months of 2017. Well, there we go. That's a lot about, uh, the inner uh, workings and neuroses of Jim Laskowski. We'll learn more <laughs> about him when he shows up in another two or three years for <laughs> his third go. Um, I'm very patient. Yeah. I, I, I try, man. Uh, you know, again, We'll talk about my next episode of the Directors Club sometime soon. Oh, and, we will. Yeah. Um, we are going to do something a little bit different going ahead into silence, by the way. And I will mention this again in the review, just in case somebody happens to skip this part. Um, Jim wants to talk very specifically about the last shot of the movie. And while it's not a spoiler or anything like that, I do feel like it's something that I want to give people a chance to avoid if they want to. So yes. we are going to do the full review and we're going to do our souvenirs and our ratings and then we're going to go on to this short little discussion of the final moment of the film. So there will be, uh, a, you know, kind of a gong to to stop people just in case they really don't want that spoiled. Um, but uh, the rest of the movie is pretty much fair game. Come on back right after this. We're going to talk about a Scorsese movie. It's silence right after this. That's me. Silence is directed by Martin Scorsese. It's written by Scorsese with Jay Cox. It's based on the book of the same name by Shusaku Endo. It stars Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, Tadanobu Asano, Kieran Hines, and Liam Neeson. It's set in the 17th century Japan where two Jesuit missionaries go searching for one of their brothers that has gone missing. These brothers, by the way, are played by Adam Driver and uh, Andrew Garfield. Upon arriving there, they are faced with the persecution of their Christian flock. So it falls upon our protagonist, Father Rodriguez, that's Garfield, to decide whether to keep the faith and fight for the lives, the very lives of the Christians gathered in Japan or apostate and save his hide and potentially theirs. Silence dares to ask about faith and how faithful one should be. And it's very, very reflective and contemplative, possibly to its detriment. It's the kind of story that one would tell at the age of 75 and after 50 years doing what you love. It's the kind of story that one gravitates to when they're nearer to the end of their life and career than the start. So it got me thinking, and not to start this year and this podcast on a dour note. But Jim Laskowski, pop Ooh. quiz hotshot. What if this was Scorsese's final film? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's like, yeah, it, it, I just flash back to David Bowie suddenly uh, from last year and 
come like sort of realizing uh, the themes surrounding Black Star and him coming to terms with moving forward in whatever capacity he believes. That would be um, that's an interesting thought. Certainly, it is kind of a culmination of themes and ideology that he's been exploring since Mean Streets. Because even that film, primarily being about a gangster underworld and guys hanging out, does explore the ideas of faith and holding on to relationships and what does that mean and loyalty and camaraderie and all that stuff. So, And I know this has been kind of touted as a religious parable, but I also think it's about the extreme dedication people can have to their beliefs. And I think, to some degree, Scorsese as a filmmaker shows his strongest conviction in questioning beliefs and faith, you know, as well as his conviction in the Catholic tradition, because I, I believe he still is a practicing Catholic. However, I think he struggles with it like most humans do. And it's something that like in a very different way that Kevin Smith tried to tackle with dogma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This you is know? true. Um, I, you know, I think to answer my own question, you know, you bring up a really, really interesting example with black star, um, which, you know, I think a lot of people were revisiting this week because it was David Bowie's birthday last week. And of course yeah. that also means it's been a year since we lost him, but black star for me, that was a man who knew he was leaving. And if you don't believe me, just, you know, drop the needle on Lazarus and hear the first line where he says, look up here, I'm in heaven. Right. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I, at least I hope knock on something wooden that Scorsese is not sick and that he doesn't, you know, any kind of intention of a final project would be intentional. My question was more like, what if something happens to him again, please touch wood tomorrow. And we happen to lose him. And this just stands as the last thing he made. Mm-hmm. I, I think it would unintentionally be, a really fitting closing chapter, one that is confounding in some ways, like deeply, deeply reflective and, you know, with all these threads to pull on, but, you know, including, including doubt, um, as, as one would have at the end of their life. Um, but the thing that I think would be probably the most interesting is, it's one of the final projects that he had knocking around, his drawer for most of his career. You know, Scorsese's career is littered with movies that he had to wait and wait and wait to make. Um, Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. Last Temptation of Christ, Gangs in New York, Silence. Silence is a movie he was going to make, you know, back in the Um, Mm eighties. But he just, either he couldn't find the right time or the right cachet to make it or whatever. So, to me, I think that that that's my answer to, the, to this. If it was his final film, along with having leaving us so much to kind of chew on, it would also be quite fitting that it was a project that he was knocking around for a long time. Um, I get the feeling that you that you dug this movie to to some extent. I did very much, and it. But it's funny because you know before you hit record, you mentioned the experience of um, your friend reading a book. Yep. Uh, the, the book version of this and kind of going, well, it's not necessarily a movie or I mean a book that you love per se. And it's really hard for me to like, I don't know, get like say, oh, my God, everybody, you got to go see this movie. It's incredible. It's not like well, it's 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 very it's a very different experience walking out mm-hmm. because 
as much as I appreciated um, my time with the being in this world and having these questions along with the characters, it was... <sighs> I don't want to use the word chore, but it was kind of an endurance test to some degree, as it was for the characters. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just it. It's like a lot of people complained about Wolf of Wall Street being as long as it was, but that had energy <laughs> and entertainment and people screaming and laughing and, uh, you know, DiCaprio, you know, pounding a microphone on his head while giving these incredible speeches and stuff. So. You know, on on one on one end, it's like the complete flip side. It's almost like he actively, although this was a passion project, he'd been waiting on it. He sort of like went, "What can I do that would be the complete opposite of what I just did?" But at the same time, uh, some people labeled Wolf of Wall Street as an endurance test because of its length and just how much he uh, sort of. Um, I don't want to say romanticize because that's not the right word, but he he reveled a little bit too much in excess along with the characters because they reveled too much in excess, money, drugs, women, etc. But here, it's almost like these characters are reveling in their faith and, and their doubt and just their strong belief that they don't want to see it um, dissipate in, in any because like I mean to some degree both Liam Neeson and Andrew Garfield in this movie they're stubborn they yeah. don't want to break what they believe you know and I think that for me it's always been like let's find a middle ground let's try and let I want to understand where you're coming from and I want you to understand where I'm coming from as opposed to like no you're wrong and this is what I believe and that's just how I've always been so I think the best moments really are the dialogue-heavy scenes where two people um, are wrestling and trying to figure things out. Because those are some of my favorite moments in Last Temptation of Christ as well. See, it's funny because for me, actually, some of the best moments are the moments where it it makes you sit there and let it come to you. Like There are a lot of moments mm, yeah. where this movie is freakishly patient um it, you know if, if i didn't know for a fact that this was edited by thelma schumacher i wouldn't believe it because this has gotta be if, it, if it's not his most static and stoic and patient movie then i don't know what is there are a lot of images that just wash very very slowly over you and and make you wait for them to come to you this movie is very very much a meditation about religion and about life in general and it's not like i said very much like the book it's not something that i think people are necessarily going to enjoy but it is something i think they should see you know yeah no for sure i mean especially in this day and age i mean we're sort of experiencing in this country a lot of culture clashing and a lot of just people button heads over a a wide range of issues and you know thinking about oh gosh do we have to worry about russia again and (laughs) you know like communism right i know i'm just like but it's just really kind of we don't do well when you know other people try to impart their beliefs onto us and sometimes we retaliate in really horrible ways when they do and it's just it's just a weird time obviously politically but also i i think it's an interesting film to see what happens when you know two jesuit priests 
uh, go to Japan, and they're very strong in their conviction, and they, you know, believe in it wholeheartedly to where they like, oh, there are other people in this country that believe it too? Cool, let's support them. But when they do, they experience um, just essentially these, um, I don't even want to call them villains, but they just a horrible faction of uh, people on a power trip. Well, just it's just it's the other side, right? Yeah, it's it's them saying we know what you want to do, but sorry, this is not the we're just not going to let it happen. Right, Um, and I like is I I think that is the point of a movie like this um, that one endures uh, more than they really revel in. Although I'm sure there are lots of people who reveled in this movie. I don't know anybody personally, Um, Mm -hmm. but you know that that in in experiencing this kind of a more difficult test that you end up having time to reflect. Yeah. You know, and I don't think enough movies do that. Certainly no, not enough commercial movies do that. Yeah, no, it, it definitely lets certain scenes breathe and there's not a whole lot of score, which really surprised me because yeah. that's like, that's kind of like the antithesis of last temptation of Christ with Peter Gabriel's incredible score for that. Um, were, you, were you waiting for gimme shelter? Like I was, <laughs> Yeah, of course. You got to have a Rolling Stones song in there somewhere. Um, or like Wolf of Wall Street. Oh my God, did he just use a Foo Fighters song? <laughs> that, that was one of my first like like in shock moments of watching that. But it's, yeah, there's not that use of a, you know, a memorable use of a song, of course, but it's not the kind of movie that calls for that at all. Um, I think that, I think it's really interesting though, with uh, the character of Kierko, Kierku, um, who keeps showing up, yeah, um, to sort of like, I mean, it, almost not necessarily for levity or for comedic effect at all, but it's just kind of he's sad and pathetic, the things that he does, and yet he keeps coming back begging for forgiveness and how sincere he is about it, or maybe he's not at all, and he's just like. Uh, blind, blindly trying to hold on to his beliefs, but while being a kind of a reprehensible um, traitor. Well, I mean, you know, I, 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 and I say this as as a more or less lapsed one, but welcome to Catholicism. You mm-hmm. know, you can go out there yeah. and screw up as much as you want. Just get your butt in that booth and ask for forgiveness, and you get it. And yeah, that's absolutely contradictory and and ass backwards, but. Hey, it's and you're right. He is. He's almost used to comic effect. He, he reminded me a bit of um, how well do you remember the curious case of Benjamin Button? Oh, not too well, because I just saw it once and didn't care for okay, it. But there's a guy who keeps showing up and telling Benjamin Button about the time he got struck by lightning. Oh, OK. And he, tends, yeah, yeah. And he tends to always walk in right when something really crappy is, is happening in Benjamin's life. Right. That, that, that's right. that's kind of what this guy reminded me of. Like, I, I can tell he means it every time to as much as, you know, his his weird little way of meaning it. But he always seems to roll into Rodriguez's orbit right around the time that it's like the least convenient for Rodriguez. Right. You know, you, you almost expect the father to say, hey, guy, I just apostated a moment ago. Like, I really don't have time for this. But meanwhile, he, he has to listen to the confession and has to absolve them. Um, and, you know, in case you're in case you're wondering at home about the audio medium, I actually just did cross in the air, you know, to go along with absolving him. <laughs> and I, thought, I just thought, why did I do that? Nobody could see this. Um, but what about okay so speaking of rodriguez what did we think of garfield in this movie um you know this is 
this is a really really heavy burden to put on an actor like him did he, did he hold up for you or or no i think he did and you know i've honestly been a fan and i know that he did his spider-man movies and i didn't care for those either but the movie never let me go is one of those movies i think about still quite a bit to this day mm. um and it, that's something. That's a book that I desperately need to read because I connected with the film so strongly. And everybody's like, "Oh, the book is a million times better." So that's something I need to do this year. But um, I thought he was really great alongside Carrie Mulligan in, in "Never Let Me Go." So he's 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 had the thumbs up from me for quite a while. And of course, the Social Network. He was very good. And um, I've yet to see Hacksaw Ridge, but it's number one on my must see list. And I think that. Um, People can certainly have their issues with accents or just some of the dialect delivery, but um, I never became so aware of it that it took me out of the movie. I really thought he was consistent enough and believable, and you know whether he's internally struggling or um, externalizing his frustration. I thought I bought it. I thought he was very good in this movie. I, I thought he was. I thought he was good i didn't think he was great um you know you brought it up so i'll go there he's much better in hacksaw ridge it kind of seems a little bit more suited uh Mm -hmm. to him he you know we 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 late late in this movie we have the exorcist combo of a young priest and an old priest and um (laughs) he he felt like a little bit too young of a priest um maybe maybe you know i i don't and and in a way that kind of works because you know he's oh well he's he's 33 now actually um you know apropos year to make this movie i guess um (laughs) but um in the in in that way the folly of his mission does kind of suit him because this this task that he takes on that he presses kieran hines the monsignor uh to let him and adam driver do um it is the kind of thing that's that that smacks of the folly of youth you know, and every sure. time where he gets into one of these situations where he really should just get out and save himself and realize that he can do so much more good elsewhere, you really get the idea that it's the hubris of youth that's that's working. And if, if they had got an, an older actor, if they had got an actor who was closer to 40, it might not have worked as well. So you kind of need this, whatever the, you know, priest version of cocky is to go along with it and i think he brings that well enough you 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 mentioned you know he his accent is a little dodgy and there's a moment or two where he kind of seems to flake but it's you know his career is kind of taking a pretty cool turn between this and hacksaw ridge um so i'm i'm on board for the garfield and i do count myself a big fan by the way of never let me go oh good yeah i i I, and i also think you you sort of speak of um being cocky and i think that i think adam driver is actually really good for that Mm. um if you've seen his character on girls just sort of kind of being an elitist hipster know-it-all who just thinks you know he he has the answers and he can do things the way he wants to do them and uh, i think man did he have a heck of a year too i haven't seen patterson but i just I mean, he's definitely more of a supporting player in this, and doesn't get to do nearly as much. But no, I but that's he, I that's he, that's the story. Like that, that's that's yeah. the way the book is structured too. Right. Okay. But I I thought he did a, I thought he did a fine job complimenting you know his his uh, his uh, buddy there, and uh, you know overall, I mean, you know Liam Neeson was Liam Neeson for the most part, but 
I certainly really liked when they finally uh, crossed paths again and had some very interesting words to share. Yeah, uh, I, I think I could have actually done with a whole movie just in that encounter. I think that like I yeah. really I really think that that would have made an amazing like 70 minute scene um, to, to, you know, to hear them going back and forth about like their experience and where it's brought them and how their paths have crossed. Yeah, have have Richard Linkletter direct yes, that scene. <laughs> yes. Um, but speaking of the director, we got, we got to get there. So so of course yeah. this is a, a Scorsese picture. Um, where does this fall in the overall canon? Is this great Scorsese? Is this lesser Scorsese? Is this somewhere in the middle? Uh, you know, we we don't see his his typical fingerprints all over this movie, with the exception of perhaps one shot. There's a shot where the, at the beginning, and it's in the trailer, where they're going down the steps of the of the church, and it's this epic shot from overhead that basically pans yeah. horizontally. And you see that, and you're like, yep, I know who directed this movie. But exactly. you, take that, you, you take that out of it, and this really does not feel like a Marty movie. Where does this fall in his overall oeuvre? For me, it's probably in the middle, and I think I like Last Temptation of Christ a little bit more, um, but he's you know he's had some interesting movies that I guess I've defended more than most. Even something like Bringing Out the Dead, again another movie that wrestles with faith and you know sort of having to deal with a job where you're confronted with mortality on a regular basis. So I think that's that's another like I think all of his movies really uh, to some extent or another. Um, reflect his mentality and his ideology and what he struggles with as a human being and like even something like After Hours which is a great dark comedy that he did uh, it was that movie resulted as it was a result of him not being able to make Last Temptation of Christ so he channeled all his frustrations and energy into this um, you know 90 minute comedy with Griffin Dunn struggling throughout New York City and I think he's really good at doing that like making a making a uh, like a macro level story very personal to him and I think that's what I responded to like I think this is a genuine personal artistic statement from one of my favorite directors hmm. i'm on board with it as a result but so, i don't think it's one i'm going to rewatch. no like see, over and over and over the only his last four films are films that i've written about um since i started reviewing films in 2007 so shutter island hugo wolf of wall street and silence and i still haven't given any one of his films top marks and that's mostly because he's competing against himself you know, so even the films sure. of his that are not perfect, but seem to have that genuine energy that I'm used to. I'm I'm looking at The Departed as a for instance, um, or a film that I really like loved to no end, like Bringing Out the Dead. I haven't got back there. Even Hugo, which is just an absolute joy. The first time I saw it, I was like, I don't know. It feels like there's something missing. Um, and Silence mm-hmm. is in that same basket um it's not something i'd say that you know get to it when you get to it the way i look at something like new york new york you know if you're if you're doing right a a scorsese series that should be like down around the last ones you get to because there's exactly there's yeah. two reasons to watch that and they're both they're two shots and you can just youtube them um then you know you get into movies that are are beautiful but seem a little bit muddy like Kundun, um or um or, you know, or even when age he's, of innocence, age of innocence. Yeah. 
Um, so I, you know, I, I don't really know. This is not, this is not a good fellas. It's not even really a last temptation for me, but it's, it's, it's only because he's competing against himself. Like if this was, you know, if this, Hey, listen, even let's, let's talk about a Scorsese disciple. If this was a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I would probably be saying it's the best thing he's ever done, but because we're going against 50 years of work here, it's really, it's hard for me to really kind of say that this is some of the best stuff that Scorsese's ever done, even though by its elements, it's, it's, it's him shooting at the top of his game. It's him editing amazingly well, just by laying off the editing button. And it shows remarkable patience for a director who's often been known to be very, very spastic. Yeah. No, no whip pans or, Really well, there fast are, there are, but there, you know, that's, that's the, that's the crazy thing. There's at least two whip pans in this movie and they are so violent because they need to be right. Yeah. Yeah. No, they come at, they come, they come at very specific times. Yeah. I think he wants to put us in the mindset of those who suffer yeah. and <laughs> is that an entertaining, pleasurable experience? Not necessarily. So I think that's why we might be left with, uh, it's not one I want to rewatch, but at the same time, I'm so grateful that I had this experience of seeing this on the big screen. See, if you want to put us in the mindset of those who suffer, why th- this is a complete polar opposite to something like the passion of the Christ, you know, which is also well, about yeah. the suffering and the agony, but this is so drastically different that in that respect, I'd say if somebody wants to get in touch with the part of religion that is about suffering and and penitence and, um, you know, and just pure blind faith, this is the kind of story to, you know, to, to sit down in front of. I think, it, you know, it's definitely more internal suffering. Oh, yes. Because, because like, I mean... I think there's one, not something I would ever dream of giving away, but there's a specific moment of violence that comes out of left field that really takes you aback because you haven't experienced anything like that in this entire movie, really. Yeah. Um, a lot of the other, you know, torture, for lack of a better word, happens um, as a result of seeing things play out for long periods of time, like being put on a cross and uh, while the tide's coming in. Um, and that's that's a sequence that I felt like, wow, this is really going on much longer than maybe it needs to be. But I think he's trying to make a point by doing that. Probably. So and I, th- I think that the thing that goes a long way with the, the movie as a whole is I, th- I think he's trying to make a point. Um, but I will say, and we'll get to it, but there's a certain instance where I was like, you didn't need to do that. And um, it's very close to being a rat on the windowsill for me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there in just a second. We do, of course, end our reviews here on the Matinee Cats with a souvenir or something tangible or intangible that if you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Uh, Jim Leskowski, what is your souvenir from Silence? Ooh, wow. That is a tough call. Hmm. I think, um, hmm. I mean, I don't want to go with something as simple as a rosary, but at the same time, it has a pretty significant, um, it is a significant symbol in this movie that I think plays a huge role when he's um, taking it apart. Yeah. And one particular character chooses not to take it. Yeah. So I think I'm going to be the one that takes it. <laughs> okay. For me, my souvenir is, uh, and we didn't really talk about it much, so I kind of feel like this is a little bit of a cheat, but 
I want to talk to the Inquisitor. There's a character in this oh. movie. Um, he's an old samurai, and uh, he turns out to be the Inquisitor of the province. Um, and his he's played by an actor named Issei Ogata. And this man commands every scene that he's in. He's got <laughs> such a distinct way of speaking. Um, oh, yes. You know, that, there, there's the line that you hear in the trailer is the price for your glory is their suffering. And the way he says glory is goddamn epic. Um, and I say that, you know, fully intend that I know that we're talking about a religious <laughs> movie. Um, you know, this is, I, I'd never seen this actor before. And I really, really hope that this is the kind of project that gets him a few more parts. Cause he's not a spring chicken either, but to my souvenir would be, Anytime he's talking, and I would love to have a conversation with this man. I think he's just got such an amazing speaking voice as a person who, of course, is interested in such things. Um, that would be my souvenir, is the Inquisitor uh, and, and being able to have a conversation with him. We rate on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Jim Laskowski, what do you give Martin Scorsese's Silence? Silence, yo. Um, three point five. <laughs> I'm gonna go with three point five. Right I'm with I, you. I'm 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 totally with you. This 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 merits rewatch. This merits contemplation. Um, mm-hmm. it is flawed. Like there are moments where I would I would really, but I want to think about the flaws. That's the weird thing, you know. It's not like I think it's a yeah, mess. right. I really want to think about these decisions. So um, three and a half for both of us. And um, hey, listen, maybe you really hated this movie, so let me know. Maybe you love this movie. Maybe you think that we're nuts and this thing is a masterpiece and it's the second coming of Goodfellas or something like that. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter or at matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. But consider yourself warned. We are now going to move on after this short uh, alert and talk about the very final moment of Martin Scorsese's silence. And the sign says the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls, the tenement halls, whispering the sounds of silence. All right, you're in it now. If you've heard all the warnings, you're you know we're we're talking about absolutely everything about this movie. Jim, you mentioned right. Uh, when we were getting ready for this show that you specifically wanted to talk about the last moment in this movie which by the way I hadn't seen it yet so I was like how is this movie going to end and in the run up when when Rodriguez does finally kick it it's not hard to figure out what has (laughs) happened before we get the image of what has happened so I gotta believe that that is what got in your craw but but please since you wanted to talk about it you take the floor well, honestly, that is you, you. You summed it up right then and there because I honestly think that showing the cross while he's um, being cremated essentially was completely unnecessary because I think that is already um, a given. I mean, it's clear that you know late in the film, after he's you know um, put his foot down, let's say, <laughs> uh, he didn't want to do it. And I think deep down, he's converting maybe in the same way as Liam Neeson did, and but still holding strong on the inside to his true beliefs. That was the impression that I thoroughly thought um, throughout. And there's a specific moment where Kirko comes back to talk with him, and 
you know, he sort of has a little deep, meaningful conversation with, um, you know, God to some extent. And I think that um, we didn't need that very final shot to spell it out for us so clearly. Um, I think it's better left, um, you know, just, you know, with the image of him burning. I mean, the last 15 minutes, I mean, the last act is kind of rushed but i think what are you going to do have it go on for another hour <laughs> yeah i was gonna i was gonna say <laughs> you know? we're talking about, we're talking about a movie that's yeah very close to three hours and and was delayed and delayed and delayed because they couldn't cut it down to time uh, you know and we're talking about how its ending feels rushed um yeah and liam neeson i mean he basically just became liam neeson and said okay i give in and this is i'll i'll join you and i'll stay in this country and i'll take on this wife and i'll do everything that uh you know i have to do essentially to survive and i think that's the movie's ultimate question is does that make him a good person um if you believe on the inside but maybe not necessarily on the outside yeah what gets me about that and i and i do i certainly do get your your qualm with it it's 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 definitely merited this is not a nitpick of any sort um i guess the only thing that it makes me wonder is just what does that say you know like like okay so are you gonna say that you're living an outward lie for decades that inside you were always still a Christian, even though you professed to be a Buddhist and took on the name of the Buddhist yeah. elder. But meanwhile, hey, inside I'm really still a Jesuit. It's like, what? Well, hold on a sec. You know, it's to, to steal the line from high fidelity. It's like saying one day you shaved your head, and, but said that you always were a punk. So <laughs> it's, it's a nice little token for her to include in his burial. But at the same time, like like what does that what does that really say? Was this man still a Christian to the end, um, or is this just her trying to honor what he was when he's going off in in what he now is? Yeah, that's a good point too. Like just the idea of maybe she knew his true self and felt like well. I, I need to do this to honor his true faith. Maybe, but what but gets I also me? Think, well, wait a sec. But what gets me about that is if that was his true self, then he should have died. You know, it, it's 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 that simple. If you're you, he, this is a priest who watched. Yeah. You know, member after member of his flock get killed for their faith, and then you know, apparently Jesus says, "Nah, just take your easy way out," and that's good enough for him. I, it's, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that you can't be a part-time martyr <laughs> no that's absolutely true i it is very much the opposite of the sentiment at the end of last temptation of christ and you know maybe somebody can see that as what he does is essentially a cop-out but didn't he also uh, again put his foot down to save the lives of those people hanging necessary i mean that's one other question to sort of take into consideration like did he do that just to save these people's lives despite knowing the consequences of what he was about to do you know yeah i think that's the thing for me with the final shot is that you're right in in many ways it is the rat on the windowsill and if you have no idea what we're talking about don't worry because when you watch that movie you'll figure it out um but 
in, in many ways, yeah. it is the rat on the windowsill. But in, in other ways, it makes me question just what does it mean to be a person of faith? Do you have to profess it? Do you have to be ready to die for it? Or can you just say, screw it, I'm just going to bury it inside and save my own hide and save the hide of others. But really inside, you know, just make sure you put a cross in with me when I die and I'll be okay. Yeah, you know, I don't know how I feel about yeah, that sentiment. It's, it, it's, it's such a muddy... On the one hand, it's such an obvious image, but on the other hand, it leaves me with so many questions. Sure. And I, maybe that was Scorsese's intention, but I also think it's like, well, you know, it's him putting his own personal stamp because obviously I still think he um, is a strong practicing Catholic and wanted to end, you know, to have that character um, essentially be redeemed, I guess, to some extent. So we wouldn't leave thinking, oh my God, you know, he was uh surprise. Still Christian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but well, I don't know. I, it left me uneasy to yeah. some extent and I, I wish it hadn't. No, I, I, I certainly could have, I know what you mean. I certainly could have, I would have been very happy. This is, this is terrible to say. I could have been very happy with the final scene just of him burning. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Wow, that is dark. Um, but I, I, no, I got it. And, and yeah, as soon as I saw that image, I'm like, yeah, I know why Jim wants to talk about this. But it's, it's, it does seem like, yeah, it does seem like Scorsese wants to redeem him. I guess. In that final moment. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it is <laughs> Which a, I don't think was, he should have. No, it's a, it's a strange inclusion. We are going to go on now to the other side. Come on right back after this. We're going to talk about some more Scorsese and uh, some other uh, movies about God right after this break. Jim's choice for the other side, of course, um, with us talking about a Scorsese movie is our main topic. We, we couldn't just leave it at that. We had to go a little bit further with that. And uh, Jim went back to 1988 to one of uh, the other very uh, overt uh, explorations of faith um, by the, uh, the seminal director. Um, you went to The Last Temptation of Christ, which, of course, is based on the uh, novel by, um, excuse me, by uh, a Greek guy. Uh, yeah, that Greek guy. Kazantzakis um, is the no- is the novelist who wrote it, and um, I kind of think has gotten lost to time. Tell people a little bit about the Last Temptation of Christ. Well, essentially, it's all in the title. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> but, but yeah, cool. there you go. That's the summation Next right time there. On the cast. It's it's a very personal movie for me because uh, I mean I've always I've always struggled with having strong faith and strong belief myself and you know i had heard from people like kevin smith that when they saw this movie it sort of reaffirmed their faith and you know i i think it's a very important movie from martin scorsese because obviously it's another passion project that he wasn't able to uh, pull off at a certain point in time and maybe it was for the best because he wanted to tell this story um that was based on this novel that kind of humanized 
Jesus, essentially. Um, and I think that's what got people up in arms at the Catholic Church was they, you know, they don't see him as a man of temptation who would, uh, you know, become an ordinary human being if that temptation was presented towards him. And I think to actually just see it uh, play out right before our eyes was very upsetting to a certain faction of, of, of strong believers. But I found that whole um, final act of this movie to really be profound and to, to actually make me appreciate what Jesus was as, as, as a human being and not this Superman, not this super Christ, not this buddy Christ, hmm. <laughs> you know, just uh, like a guy who, you know, deals with everyday normal Joe things like temptation. I, I mean, I think it's a, it's just one of the strongest things that people deal with on a daily basis, whether they're, you know, shopping for, um, the right foods, maybe they're going to go for the snack cakes and, you know, uh, potato chips instead. Um, it's like all these temptations are constantly placed in front of us, and how do we respond to that, and does that corrupt um, our faith to some extent? And you have Willem Dafoe playing a great uh, Jesus Christ character here, mm -hmm. and you got Harvey Keitel as Judas with his uh, New York accent, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny to me. As opposed to being a flaw, it's, I actually kind of like it. It's the hair that always amuses me. I, sure, I, can, I always have trouble getting past the Judas hair. Hey Jesus, what you doing? And like just <laughs> the way he talks. That's actually sometimes. pretty close too. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think it's great. I still I still think it holds up beautifully, and Peter Gabriel's score is one of the best. Yeah, I, I will have to issue the uh, the normal other side music to to drop in a little bit of the uh, Peter Gabriel's score, which if you've never heard it, uh, go listen to it all. It is glorious, glorious music, and it actually kind of makes me uh, long for the time when you got more soundtracks like that, where one compo where one rock star would like compose a whole uh, album for for a movie, uh, rather than the mixtape culture that we kind of get now with most movies. Um, you know, one of the things I wonder is the difference between Silence and The Last Temptation of Christ. Is this the difference between the Catholic view of a young man and the Catholic view of an old man? Hmm, that's a good point. Um, hmm. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, at the same time, I'll, I am also a lapsed Catholic. And I, I sort of transitioned over at one point in my life, and I don't think there was anything that triggered it necessarily, um, other than maybe seeing Ricky Gervais' The Invention of Lying, <laughs> which really, really approaches religion in a very amusing manner. Right. Um, I, I sort of transitioned into being agnostic and saying, you know what? I feel really comfortable in saying I don't know for sure if yes. there's a heaven and there's a God. Um, and that's maybe, you know, kind of a wishy-washy place to be and, not, you know, not having conviction either way. But honestly, I, it's where I feel comfortable. And I think that uh, Last Temptation of Christ is really, yeah, um, maybe a younger perspective on, on the Catholic faith and what Jesus had to go through and sort of some of the uh, trials and tribulations and the betrayals and all that stuff. But it really does come down to, to an audacious choice. I'm, sur I'm sure that was covered in the book, but just let's see what would happen if, you know, he decided, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to 
die for everybody's sins. I want to live a normal life, you know, and to actually show that um, and show that as basically um, a gift or a temptation from the devil, I think is also uh, pretty magnificent. See, what I love about both movies, actually, is they take in both cases it's in there but you kind of have to look for it in different ways it gets back to a question that's the title of a recent book that i loved by chuck klosterman and the question is but what if we're wrong you know and and it's Hmm. it's it's the question that continually dogs silence because rodriguez has to hold Firm to the the idea that Christianity is the light and Christianity is the way. Otherwise, these people are dying for nothing. And the same thing has to hold tight in the last temptation of Christ. He has to die. Like, you know, he gets in that moment and, and it's actually very, very well played where the angel that's actually the devil takes him down off the cross and says, no, you don't have to die. Come right. down. It's okay. You're all right. You don't have to. And, and and gives that little seed of doubt of what if you don't have to? And the two movies yeah. play it so differently that in silence, if you don't have to, you are doing it all for nothing. Meanwhile, in Last Temptation of Christ, it plays it as, no, you don't have to. Go be a normal person. You've done enough for these people, you know, and then look at what that inevitably does. Yeah, you know, but it it asks this really, really thing, this this key phrase that I don't think we ask ourselves often enough in life is, "What if we're on the wrong side?" And oh, I still ask that. Just the final image of Last Temptation Christ is so powerful, and the final thing he says, yep, really made me um, kind of understand more why people uh, idolize this uh this figure so uh, with so much conviction in their hearts and it made me understand somebody more like my aunt who you know goes to church every sunday and does the practice and feels a lot of feels a sense of community when she goes there um but i also just think <laughs> going back to something like la la land maybe i just really like it when a filmmaker for maybe the last act envisions an alternate version of the events sure yeah yeah so i think that's something that i really appreciate um and in last temptation of christ it's really done with, there's a lot of weird visual flourishes that aren't in silence just like creative imagery when it comes to like when he's um in that circle on the beach or uh wherever he is sort of testing his faith i think yeah when um, he's when or when he's like in that rashomon temple yeah, you know. Oh yeah. Um, There's just like, some awe-inspiring images. In yeah, this. there are. Um, you know, w- another difference between these two movies that I wanted to ask you about, where it comes to Last Temptation, is did the cat did the casting in Last Temptation ever get distracting? I mean, this is a movie. Speaking of again, that has David Bowie as Pontius Pilate, and as much as I do love that as a, as, a, as an idea, um, it, it's uh, it's one of those things that actually makes Silence work so well is that it's largely flanked out by Asian actors who most of us have not encountered very often. Whereas you get to last temptation of Christ and you know, pardon the pun, God lover, but I I don't see Mary Magdalene. I see Barbara Hershey. Um, 
Does that That's did that good... ever did that ever like knock you off the off the horse at all? Well, I think the first time I saw it, maybe you know, I was like seventeen, eighteen years old, and I don't know if I was just the astute films you know devotee that I am now to where maybe I didn't know who Barbara Hershey was when I first saw this movie, and you know, obviously I knew who Willem Dafoe and Harvey Keitel were. And uh, I'd always been a fan of, of David Bowie. And maybe that is a little distracting just, you know, in hindsight, just like, well, you probably could have some cast could have cast some unknowns. But at the same time, like, I think Willem Dafoe really carries this mu- movie beautifully. Um, oh, I have no throughout. problems with Dafoe. And I, you know, yeah. I can even I can even make a case for I can even certainly make a case for Keitel. But after that, I just want nothing but actors that I don't know. Sure. Sure. No, that's understandable. You know, again, I we we keep kind of backing up all the time. It was one of those things that worked in the favor of uh, Passion of the Christ. Is once you got beyond Jim Caviezel and Monica Bellucci, nobody else was a name. You know, right? Um, I can I, listen as as much as Scorsese wants to be a film nerd. I can even get behind Irving Kirshner, who <laughs> who shows up in this movie. Um, it, yeah. I, don't, I don't I don't know though. By the time as I said, by the time you get to David Bowie's Punches Pilot, I think we've cro- I think yeah. we've crossed the line. Um, what is the ultimate? Yeah, take- no, that could take that could take you out of it. Sure. What is the ultimate takeaway? I should tell people here, by the way, for some really, really in depth and exhaustive Scorsese discussion, and I'm going to put a li- put links in the show notes. Do go to the two, not one, two episodes of the Directors Club dedicated to Scorsese, and uh, and listen to some long conversations. But what is the ultimate takeaway from the Last Temptation of Christ? Uh, you know, like if somebody's never seen this before, why would they go on to it right after Silence? Ooh, well, I mean, it's a great companion piece to sure. Silence and to sort of see um, very similar themes that Scorsese is f- consistently fascinated in. But I also think it's it's a it's a movie that, uh, as someone who really loves exploring the uh, you know just why we're all here and what does it all mean and what if we're wrong. Um, and somebody who really thrived in something like philosophy class and, you know, just really likes asking the big questions. This is a kind of one of those essential movies in Scorsese's filmography that is definitely an outlier, but it's also um, kind of appropriate for him to take on this subject matter, given the fact that, like, going all the way back to Mean Streets, he was very interested in what it means to be religious and uh, faithful to um to something outside of yourself. Yeah. I, I think if, if nothing else, people should probably go to this movie because I sort of feel like it's getting a little lost in the middle of Scorsese's canon. Uh, you know, like this is, uh, it, which is weird to say when you consider that this was a film that was widely protested uh, at, at its time. I kind of feel like, you know, everybody knows Raging Bull and everybody knows Goodfellas and everybody knows, you know, all the stuff from the new millennium. But movies like the you mentioned before, like After Hours and um, and even Age of Innocence and this movie have a lot of really good things to offer, um, but are kind of getting just dropped into the middle of the bibliography. And, and I kind of think that these are ones that are worth pulling off the shelf. There's a really badass Criterion edition of this, too, by the way. Is this the only Scorsese movie on Criterion? So far. That's wild. I know, right? Right? Yeah. So Get, um, get After Hours out on Criterion, people. <laughs> get, after, get After Hours on Blu-ray, for the love of God. Right? You know, I'm just tired of watching that one in standard depth. We're going to talk about one more movie after this. Come on back. We're going to talk about something else and close out the show.
For my choice on the other side, I went way off book people and went back to 1977. Speaking of a comedy, I went to a film directed by comic legend Carl Reiner. It's Oh God, a movie where George Burns plays God and talks to uh, John Denver. Um, it, literally, he, he it, John Denver is the only person who can hear him, and he is a grocery assistant store manager. But uh, nobody around him, um, no, go figure, believes he can talk to God. Um, this is a movie uh, that, uh, again, kind of got lost to time. It was a big comedy at the time. It actually spawned an entire God trilogy, because uh, <laughs> this film was followed by Oh God, Book Two. Uh, and then they, they rounded it out with Oh God, You Devil, uh, where George Burns also plays Satan. How about that? Uh, Jim Leskowski, I get the feeling that you were only so-so on this movie. You are correct on that. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's just dated. I mean, honestly, though, I do have an affinity for um, like early '80s, mid '80s comedies. Uh, Mr. Mom comes to mind, where yeah. I, I, as, I think a lot of that coasts on the charm of, of of someone like Michael Keaton. But at the same time, the opening credits to this movie was like out of a sitcom. <laughs> it was like let's show a montage of how he how this person lives throughout the day and all the goofy, weird, wacky things that happen. Um, it just seemed like very three's company or something to me. Um, and honestly, I think, I think George Burns is a complete delight mm-hmm. in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I really do like a lot of the dialogue. It's sort of, it's very reminiscent of like the kind of things or the kind of one liners that Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner would have uh, had in their act together. Uh, so I find those elements very likable, but I thought I just, I can't get behind John Denver as, as the lead. Um, Is it I, the I, hair? It's, it's definitely the hair and he's just <laughs> a little too whiny and like, come on, do you really like, he wanted his wife to instantly back him up and to where he was like whining complaints. Like, why don't you believe, I mean, I, I, I honestly, if some anybody came up to me and with the the claim that they've talked to God, I would be very um, hesitant, and I would also understand uh, if I was on the other side of things that not everybody's going to believe me, even my own wife probably. She's going to be questioning my sanity, and as opposed to getting really mad about it, um, just be a little bit, I don't know, less whiny, I guess. Uh, so, I mean. But weird enough, I could, I would have much preferred to see someone like John Ritter as the lead in this movie. Um, I think he would have done a great job. I've always found him great as a comic foil, and I can see him, you know, or even someone like Steve Martin, because Carl Reiner directed him brilliantly in the movie All of Me with Lily Tomlin. Right. Um, but really, it's it really comes down to the fact that also in the latter half, it kind of it kind of lost steam for me and then it really uh takes a dive in the courtroom as far as i'm concerned see it's funny actually because that was where i was really actually starting to dig it um so you know okay so first of all let's take a few things you you gave me a whole lot at once um usually do (laughs) denver in this movie um I didn't. I, I got to be honest. I didn't even realize he did acting. To be entirely honest, the only thing I other th- other thing I saw him act in was like various specials with the Muppets. I didn't know that he actually <laughs> had a had a career as an actor outside of his folk singing. Um, he very much is playing a surrogate, um, John Ritter. Like, yeah. you, like I I could totally see him flanked by 
a, a blonde girl and a dark haired girl and, you know, just getting into misunderstandings. Um, so I think though, that's almost by design. Like I really think that George Burns needed to be the centerpiece of this movie. I didn't want to see a, a, a boxing match, like a comedic boxing match between two people with great timing. I needed to see somebody who was really, really clever and just him imparting all this wisdom on a great big dope. And I think to that end, John Denver actually really does um, work quite well in, in that respect. I don't know if you'll believe this or not, but this was actually an Oscar nominated screenplay. Wow. So this is a comedy that was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. In How the, rare is that? Right? In in 1977. That is bananas. Um, bananas, by the way, was never nominated <laughs> for Best Screenplay. Um, you know, I, I think part of it, I think, is that it just, it might seem in many respects to be too dated. Yes. Um, which is... It's unfortunate because I do like the the core concept of one person can talk to God and ask God questions. And maybe it's just the way that George Burns speaks, but I, I loved his answers. I, lo- I, I, I love the way, you know, every once in a while he gets off a really good one-liner, like when he's in the courtroom and he goes, so help me, me. I, I'm like, all right, that, that's, that's pretty good. But, you know, by and large, when he, you know, he doesn't give a lot of answers, he just makes either you know, our, our hero think about the answer or he makes the, the gathered religious elders who basically don't believe that this guy is actually talking to God, um, gives them answers. I, I like that way around it. That that's really where you see the sharp writing and directing of a guy like Carl Reiner. Oh yeah. I just, I don't know if I thought it was necessary for God to actually appear in the courtroom. I mean, I again, I do like a lot of the things he says, whether they're amusing or insightful. Yeah. I think, I think it's funny because like um, watching this made me, even though it's way goofier and m- more outlandish, it made me want to rewatch Bruce Almighty because <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of like an that's like the Jim Carrey updating of Oh God, and appropriately, someone like Morgan Freeman would play God, and I, I th- that movie's dumb kind of but i still found myself laughing and that's sort of just like maybe the jim carrey fan in me but i think i again i think it's i think it's a little too cheesy and kind of um schmaltzy at times but there were things and instances where i was like oh yeah i could see why this was a big hit and certainly uh it didn't like great on me to the point where i was like this is annoying i don't want to sit through this it was just um it, it maybe too much of a good thing after a while with just um I almost felt like, well, where do we go from here? And of course, you know, he's got to go to the media and the media blows things out of proportion. And then he's got to go to court. And I kind of, maybe I've been down that road a little bit too much in other comedies. Um, So I think that was just like my only major quibble is that I really enjoyed their interactions together. And like, you know, when he appears uh, randomly, like at the grocery store, he'll say something like, uh, Man, all these ingredients in this cereal were turning kids into walking garbage cans or something. <laughs> you know, so I, mean, I just I like it when he when he says things like that. It's very charming. So I think it, it, and it's clear to see why, based on how great George Burns is, why they decided to make sequels. And I'm sure they were terrible. I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go down that road for sure. Like I I'm good just keeping it this way. I don't really want to want to go that far. Um, you know, like yeah, you mentioned. 
the one-liners like god is talking about like he asks god gets asked about his mistakes and he says tobacco was one of my mistakes ostriches were a mistake silly looking things like avocados i made the pit too big you know like (laughs) that that's 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 a that's a really great one-liner um and I think it actually made a great companion piece to silence because, you know, on the one hand, you have a movie where God doesn't speak to the to the to the faithful. And on the other hand, you've got a movie where God only talks to this guy who doesn't believe um, it, it's a great little it's a great little weird marriage, even though, you know, it's it's maybe a little bit dated. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think when you were talking about the, the courtroom scene, um, that's kind of the culmination of the media not believing and these religious elders not believing. I think the thing that I, that that really underlines is the contradiction that belief is about the lack of empirical evidence. And you get that in this courtroom Mm. scene where God literally does a disappearing act, you know, and he only speaks to the few. It's that balance. Like we said with the, with the, with the hubris of, but what if we're wrong? It's, you just you have to power through it and say no i believe this to be true i it's it's a really really kind of frat boy way to say it through the you know through the comedy of carl reiner but i, I it's got really kind of underneath it all it's got really a cool message to it of the the very nature of belief and how you have to be able to hang on to it even when you can't put you know exhibit a in front of a person and you know who's kind of the uh the vip of this movie too is paul sorvino oh my god as, paul sorvino as, in this movie as the televangelist yeah. guy oh my god and you know the the scene there's where, no Scorsese connection right there look at that amen good job <laughs> yeah i'm a genius uh, for I, picking this movie there's a scene like yet yeah, there's the the theologians all gathered together and having a meeting. Yep. That reminded me of Hail Caesar. It did, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I just it's interesting how you go back and watch a movie like this and you find these interesting parallels including to something like Silence, which I agree it, it is it is an interesting companion but it's the complete opposite, but yet it's an interesting companion piece that I will say that I feel like I've gotten this experience in book form once mm-hmm. with a movie with a book called Conversations with God. Okay. And you know, at the time, I think a friend of mine just recommended it to me to see what my reaction would be and it is it is literally just dialogues um with God and this author writing down what God is telling him and whether like he keeps questioning i don't believe this is happening and then god will give him an answer or tell him like it's very similar to what takes place in the movie oh god but it's it's more in book form as questions and answers which you can choose to believe or not but it's an interesting read and certainly there's a lot of life affirming kind of statements throughout that i found um at the time of course i read this i don't know like 20 years ago or something at this point well i was gonna ask do you remember who wrote it no, not off Shoot. the top of my head. I'll, I'll I'll send that to you though. I was gonna, once I, well, I was going to say because you're uh, you're pretty good at recommending me books because when the last time you were on this show when you talked about why we love uh, that turned oh, into yeah. yeah that turned into a really really fascinating read. Um, so I'd, I'd definitely be interested in hearing about that book. Um, but yeah, so I guess my ultimate takeaway we talked about this kind of off the top when we're talking about James L. Brooks is 
comedy with just a little bit of weight can endure. And sure. don't get me wrong, this is this is yeah, it's dated in in some places. It's 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 messy, and uh, you know it, it's it's it certainly screams 1977 more than once. But all the same, this the the core conceit of this movie really, really, I think holds up quite nicely. Yeah, I mean, it's not something I would go back to on a regular basis, but I found it charming enough, uh, and. You know, again, like I, I do have an affinity for this era and this type of comedy in general. I just think they could have. Hey, just cast John Ritter. That's all. <laughs> exactly. And it would have been perfect. <laughs> exactly. That is episode 169 of the Matinee Cast. Come on back January 30th for episode 170. It's the Oscar episode. We'll be talking about the nominations for the next Oscar Awards happening this spring. Uh, my usual guest will be rejoining me, and it's a, it's a nice little annual tradition on this show. I kind of dig it. Jim <laughs> is on the Directors Club podcast with new episodes fortnightly. Who is next? Well, believe it or not, um, Danny Boyle Ooh. and, of course... The great Andrew James of the Row 3 Cinecast will be joining me alongside two new co-hosts oh of the show that I've hired locally. I don't want to say the word hired, but you know what I mean. I've recruited. Contacted, uh, uh, um, coerced. Yes. Uh, um, <laughs> Al and Brad will be joining the Directors Club family because I also am um, uh, pretty much hosting my own interview show called Voices and Visions, where I'm going to be interviewing filmmakers and musicians and people that I generally really have an affinity for. Um, so yeah, I'm just sort of like doing two big podcast projects, and I'm very excited for the future of Directors Club, even though if I, I may be more of a part-time host than a full-time host. What uh, and Where can people look for, um, for, the, for the other show? The other show is uh, available at VoicesVisions.net. Very cool. Uh, my site is thematinee.ca for more audio content. You can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes Store. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Silence, The Last Temptation of Christ, or Oh God! Uh, there's there's an exclamation point, so you got to say it that way, uh, or anything else uh, that you may have tickled your ear in the last ninety minutes or so can be left in the comment section of the site. Email Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter or I'm matinee underscore ca, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, Jim Laskowski, not Patrick Rapoli? <laughs> it's been an honor to talk with you once again, and I thoroughly enjoy your show every time it comes out. So thanks again, sir. You are too kind. For Jim, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.